0: This is Mental Work, the podcast unpacking the challenges faced by early career psychologists. And I'm your host, doctor Brunwyn Brunwin-Milkins. Hello mental workers and welcome back to the podcast. Today we have a stellar episode as always and we are talking about how the old model of therapy in psychology or the way we do things is not working anymore and what we need to do to empower early career psychs to be the change that they want to see in the profession. So we're going to be talking about things like other than one-to-one therapy, what are some other career pathways that psychs can take, and how can early career psychologists achieve their financial goals, amongst other things. So to bring it all home, today's guest is Dr. Haley Kelly. Hi, Haley.
1: Hello, Bronwyn. Thank you for having me.
0: My pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. So Hayley, just tell the listeners who you are and what you're about.
1: Such a loaded question, it isn't is. Which <laughs> personality it? Personality, should is. I speak? Of? Yeah. Um, so I think today I am here uh, in my identity as uh, CEO and founder of Therapist Rising. I am a PhD level uh, clinical psychologist who has been in the industry for longer than I care to admit—thirteen odd years. Um, And I guess primarily what I do is, and and what Therapist Rising is all about, is we're on a mission to support therapists to create sustainable, future-proof businesses, because we recognize that the current model is not going to get us out of this crisis, both from a workforce perspective, but also from a consumer client perspective.
0: Amazing. So maybe we could start off with what is the model we are talking about? Could you just unpack that for us? And I guess like maybe that model was the one that you were working in before you started Therapist Rising.
1: Totally. I, I sort of, um, I, I love the analogy of like, a that we've had various different versions of mental health as a system. And so, and you, you sort of think about it from the perspective of like, you know, back in the day, pre me, pre most of the people listening, we had the first model of mental health, which was, established on old white men (laughs) doing therapy (laughs) with other privileged people uh, based on research with other privileged people. And I sort of call that era of mental health, like version 1.0, right? So it was that really first version of mental health that I think was deeply embedded in, in like a colonized white view of the world, Uh, a very patriarchal capitalist way of looking and Uh, catering to mental health and then we went into I think the next phase of mental health which saw us being pushed away from more of like the social sciences and more towards or even like the arts humanities and more towards the hard sciences Um, we even saw and this was sort of happening as I was going through my own university training we as a psychology department were moved away from humanities and we were put in the cognitive sciences. Why? Because it's a harder science. It's seen as more data driven, more evidence-based. So I think that version was like the 2.0 where we really started to hone in on like what is evidence-based treatment. We become a lot more medicalized, I think at that point as well. And I think while those things on the face of them are seen as, as good and wonderful advancements I think on the flip side the downside of that is that we became less human um, and we really started to see the humanity being taken out of our profession out of the practice of therapy and psychology and what I think we're now moving into and I think what we're at the forefront of and what we're witnessing through some of the upheaval that I know lots of people in the profession are currently feeling is is almost like version 3.0 where we've had enough and consumers have had enough. And we're seeing this huge tidal wave of mental health um, You know, coming off the combination of lots of world events like the GFC in 2008, which then obviously ushered in a really different way of being in the world. We saw then COVID and all of the ramifications of that. But I think now what we're seeing is both the workforce and consumers are recognizing that it's not going to work. like The way that we have addressed these things in the past, And I love the saying of like, what got us here is not going to get us there. We are not going to be able to get in front of the catastrophe, the crisis of mental health by doing the same thing that we've done. Because in essence, as much as I would hate to admit it, it's what got us here in the first place. Right. And obviously it's more complicated than that, but the simplicity is it's not going to save us.
0: Mm, think this is really interesting Hayley I just want to come back to how you were saying that there's the medical model I guess 2.0 and yeah. we were data driven and I'm just curious to hear you were working in that space and it sounds like doing your PhD at the time what did you see as the negative impacts on practitioners and consumers with that medical
1: model? Yeah I think like I think the most obvious one that I've just touched on there is that the the humanness and the art of therapy became less important and it became more about the science and the data. And again, I think the, the harsh reality of this and and I'm by no means an expert in uh, decolonizing work or anything of the like, but what I do know is that when we became more data driven, we're relying on data that is still heavily embedded in a colonized capitalist, patriarchal model of data collection, data dissemination. I feel as though if anything, it's harmed a lot of people.
0: Mm, I kind of feel like with that medical model, I feel like it was what the aim was with that was for psychology to get funding. That's what I see as like a major driver of the data. Is, Is that how you see it as well?
1: Yeah, I do. I think, I think there was also a real push to be legitimized, but totally in the, in the sense of like, we need to be legitimized in order to get funding in order for like, and not just from a government perspective, but also from private business, people are not going to invest equity into a model that can't be, that can't be shown to be effective, that they can't see a return of investment on a piece of paper being reflected back at them. So I definitely think that there, there was a, a push towards that in part because it legitimized the field It makes us then more amendable to things like funding and so forth.
0: Yeah, because I'm thinking that it's kind of like we had, I guess, psychiatrists and doctors gatekeeping or Monopolizing this funding. And then we were kind of knocking at the door, being like, hey, let us in. We're legit too. Come on. on. And now it's just gotten nuts where it's like, I see in the US how much paperwork they have to do for insurance. And even in Australia, there's so much, so many hurdles to jump through to work with clients. And I guess the impact, one of them that I see on practitioners is burnout. Burnout is so prevalent and just general unhappiness, which means that they can't find meaning and purpose in their work
1: absolutely i think you're, you're 100% spot on in that um and again this this is such a it's a it's a bigger conversation than just psychology and mental health as a system because the mental health as a system is impacted by so many other systems at the same time so it's not easy enough to just say we need to change the mental health system and that will change everything. Absolutely not. It's a much bigger conversation than that, but we still need to start with the conversation and where we sit in that conversation, which is the mental health system. And you're absolutely right in saying that we can't function as a system without a workforce, Mm -hmm. but as it stands, the system is harming the workforce.
0: Yeah. And I guess taking that humanness out of it, it also harms consumers. So for example, I've heard things like from patients that when they've been in interactions with mental health professionals, that they felt like a piece of meat, that it was just like in out, like you're just not really seeing the humanness of them. And it's possible that those clinicians were burnt out or they were working in a system that wasn't assisting them to do their best work. But the point is, is that we do see a lot of dissatisfaction from mental health consumers as well.
1: Absolutely. And again, I think we're at the height of seeing some of the the pointy end of the crisis, both in terms of like mental health statistics are just deplorable, both from again consumers, but also from within our field. There is something that is inherently very, very wrong here.
0: Yeah. So that's the pointy end we're at. We're like, okay, we're all burnt out. Consumers are getting what they need from the system. Something ain't working here. Is this what kind of drove you to create the Therapist Rising?
1: Absolutely. So it, it's really interesting. Um, and I hope that hearing this story gives some degree of insight and also comfort to the people who are listening to this that my vision has been one that has been an evolution it it didn't it certainly didn't start out that I was like here is the exact blueprint (laughs) for the rest of my life what I want this mission and vision to look like and here's all the steps that I'm going to take it has evolved and transformed as I have evolved and transformed in the doing so as i've taken action as i've started to get you know my hands and feet dirty wet whatever analogy you want to use here it's my vision has become more refined but when i first started um even like pre therapist rising i was so burnt out so like literally therapist rising was born out of my own dis, my own dissatisfaction my own sense of feeling incredibly disillusioned be like the memory which is burned Absolutely into the the memory pits of my mind is sitting on the kitchen floor with my head in a bucket, dry reaching before going into a full day of clinic. And my son, at that point, he was very young, sort of hand on my back, saying, "Mummy, are you okay?" Mm-hmm. And like even now, it still brings so much emotion to me because that's that's what therapist rising was born out of the, the recognition that I can't keep doing the thing that I love, because the thing that I love is harming me.
0: Wow. And that's a huge injury. Like, you know, I've heard in the literature, people talking about moral injury, but it's like, you care so much, but then the thing that you love exactly as you say is actually harming you. How could, how can you go on? It's just such a conundrum.
1: Absolutely. And so I thought like, and I did, I kept going. And, and I think lots of us do, right? Because we've got the, the really typical schema profile of therapists, of like the unrelenting standards and self-sacrifice, subjugation, all of those things. So we do keep going, but it became so bad that I was like, I can't do it anymore. And I had to make some really drastic changes and make some choices at that point. And my way of doing that, because I didn't know any other way, was to just like, well, I just need to stop doing it and do something else instead. And so I moved more towards coaching at that point in time. And it literally changed my life. Not not that I'm saying we all need to go and be coaches. Absolutely not. But it was the catalyst of being able to see a completely different way of working with people, It was able, I was able to see how transferable my skill set is in the broader market and just how valuable my skill set is in the broader market. And eventually, after dabbling out there in the, you know, the big Wild West of coaching, I came back because so many of my colleagues and peers were saying, how are you doing this? Like you're you're speaking in front of these groups, you're running these coaching programs, you're you're working at these really high level events. Like, what the hell? Tell me how you're doing it. And so that was sort of that light bulb moment of like, this is how I can give back. Mm. I can come back and help, support, do whatever I need to do to change the lives of the people that I really care about, which were my peers and colleagues.
0: So that says to me that you were really the front runner for this in and that you weren't alone in these experiences. So there were other people also dissatisfied, but maybe they just couldn't see a way out and they got to that stage where they were just like, I need to get out. But then they went and worked at Bunnings. Nothing wrong with Bunnings. I've worked at Bunnings. But you know, they just like shifted, (laughs) shifted fields. Um, Whereas you were like, well, how can I keep like this meaning and purpose that I love about this, but do it in a way that. Protects my health rather than contributes to ill health.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think if I if I hadn't had the privileged experiences that I had had, so I, you know, many years before that, I had been and always have really been invested in self development. I read really widely, and I've been, I think, always involved in the self development world, in the coaching world, in in some shape, way, or form, even if it was at an arm's distance. And if I hadn't have had those experiences in the lead up to that, my answer would have been, I'm going to go and pack shelves at Coles. Like that would have been the answer that I had. But by sheer virtue of having these experiences, developing a bit of a network in the self-development world, and people saying to me, like, you can't just walk away from your years and years of experience. You can't walk away from a master's degree. You can't walk away from a PhD. Don't do that. Surely there's a way where you can use what you've got just in a different way that works better for you. And I was like, that's bullshit. Like, you don't know what you're talking about. It's just shit. I just want to be out of it. But then eventually I listened and there was. Yeah,
0: Yeah. no, I think that's amazing. And I just want to come to this point that you mentioned earlier, which was that you realized how transferable your skills were. And I guess like how high level and competent you were really. Um, And I just wanted to echo that, like having done a PhD myself, it was really stuck to me when I went into different workplaces and they were like, can somebody do this? And I'm like, yeah, like I can do that in my sleep. So it's just really interesting that when you get out there, when you're in this, I guess, hyper-competitive, unrelenting standards world of therapist world, you're just like, no, I'm inadequate or at best adequate. (laughs) But when you get out there, you're like, oh crap, I know a thing.
1: Absolutely. It's like the the analogy of like the worst house on the best street versus like the best house on the worst street right like yeah when we when we're in that therapy world it is commonplace to be surrounded by these incredibly intelligent high achievers you do feel like the worst house on the best street totally. right yeah but then when we go out into the big bad world we're like holy shit I'm like, a imagine. Yeah. <laughs> I'm
0: laptops, I got a chandelier.
1: Right? <laughs> yeah. there's, there's a really huge epiphany that comes through that, that I don't think therapists truly appreciate until they start to broaden their horizons a little bit and start to experience the broader market.
0: Yeah, no, I completely agree. I found that myself and that's just by dipping my toes in the water. So you've gone swimming in this area, you're in the ocean. And I'm just curious to know, what have you discovered like since going into this coaching world? Oh, so much uh, i think that
1: that is the first one um that our skills are exceptionally transferable in an industry so if you sort of think about the broader market that i'm talking about here we're talking about a, a an industry that parallels ours right so it runs alongside us and it's the coaching self development self improvement type of world and the degree that our skills are transferable directly into that is astronomically phenomenal. Like you, you don't actually understand just how transferable. And again, like I said earlier, not just transferable, but highly valuable from a monetary perspective, things like behavior change, belief resh- reshaping, like all of these things that we're just like, but I do that in my sleep. Yeah. And anyone pay for this because they don't in mental health language. <laughs> like it's really hard to get paid to be a therapist. But if you use those exact same skills out in the broader market, People are paying big, big dollars for those skills, for those outcomes, for the types of results that you are more than capable of supporting people to get with your skill set without doing any additional training.
0: Wow, when you say it like that, it really sounds like a no-brainer.
1: It's a, it's an absolute no-brainer. And again, <laughs> People are like, you're just lying. No, I'm not lying. Like, trust <laughs> me. What I'm your, your disbelief does not make this untrue.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it is. So Haley, true. The sky is
0: pink. Your disbelief does exactly. not make sure the sky is pink. My
1: skills are completely worthless, or they're only worth $190 an hour, and yeah. I need to tell you. That is not the case. It's the system that's imposed those limitations and rules on us.
0: So we're talking about one major benefit is that we can feel really good about our skill set. We can be working with people who we really want to be working with and we can have, I guess, more financial security.
1: Absolutely. Without a doubt. And I think one of the, the big realizations that I had, but it wasn't until I had some financial success. So after I'd sort of started to double and to start to really see some traction, And I started to see the money coming in for this. The effect that that security, that financial security had on me, my feelings of well being, my willingness to take risks, my willingness to do things differently, my willingness to show up for my family in a particular way, all of the things that came from that financial security were completely unexpected and amazingly priceless. Mm. I think we discount just how much financial stress we are under as therapists because there's the perception by the the broader community right that oh you charge 220 an hour you must be driving up in your rolls-royce with you know alfred your butler and which is not the case right like so many of our peers and colleagues are like just getting by or living paycheck to paycheck or do experience a degree of financial pressure and given the amount of training and education qualifications we have It feels so weird to see that. Yes. Like the huge degree of dissonance that comes up when you're sort of like, but you went to university for how many years? (laughs) And (laughs) you're living paycheck to paycheck.
0: There's such a huge degree of dissonance and you're right, it just seems to be widely accepted. Like one of my big things is I want us to be talking about money more because I completely agree with you that we just accept the level of financial strain and stress that we do have and we underestimate its impact or we're like, if you're not a martyr, you're not doing it right. So, I mean, there's a lot of that in the social work world that, you know, if you're not putting yourself out there and sacrificing completely, you're a bad social worker. But I also think it's been transported into psychology. Like we should be responsible for fixing the system and take on the burdens of that inadequate system to our own detriment?
1: 100%. I think a lot of, a lot of our labour has been weaponized. and I think particularly the industries that are heavily female dominated. So if you sort of think about social work, psychology or mental health, uh, teaching, childcare working, all of these heavily predominantly female industries that have been completely and utterly Weapon, like we we are commoditized, and I think that that's like that's really important to know that because I don't think this is it's not obviously not social work's fault, but I think this is embedded deeply in capitalism and the patriarchy. In that, women's labor has always been misused and abused, and I don't think an industry where it's heavily female dominated is going to be an exception to that rule.
0: No, I agree 100%. So with capitalism, it's like the things that you produce are the things worth money. And being in a human industry, we've had to fight really hard to be like, look, the effects that we have on people's health and well-being are immeasurable. We can actually improve their lives and improve their work capacities and their capacities to be present with their families and contribute to a coherent well-functioning society but in a capitalist world that hasn't been realized I guess and then from a patriarchal thing it's like yeah of course they're going to tell us that our skills are shit Um, and if we buy into that belief then we're going to be paid much less
1: and we are, yeah. like, <laughs> lo and
0: behold, we are. Lo and behold, we are. Yeah. Um, so it's like not only by going into coaching, Haley, have you broken from the mould and made, I guess, yourself show up as more the person that you want to show up in your life as. It sounds like it's really brought about these changes in how you view yourself in the profession.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, loud and clear, it's really important to know that your life's work is not a hobby. Mm. We don't like we don't live in a a culture, we don't live in a society where we have the luxury or the space to be doing our life's work and not being paid for it. We have to shift our mindset. And I think this comes back to how do we shift the narrative around money and finances. We have to have a massive mindset shift that this is not a hobby for us. Yes, we would do it. For most people in this in the industry, we would do it unpaid, right? Like if I could exist in my life in complete bliss and financial freedom. I would do this for free, yeah. but it's not reality. So if we can have this mindset shift away from it being a hobby and towards it, like this is the business that we are in and start to make decisions from like a business perspective, then things become much easier because we take all of the emotion out. We take all of these like preconceived, horrible, toxic beliefs that we hold They're no longer making decisions for us. It's a business decision.
0: Yes. So we're not being like, oh, I don't deserve to charge that much or like people won't pay that much or my skills aren't really worth that much. We kind of leave those beliefs at the door.
1: Absolutely. Because here's the thing. Like, I think one of the the most misused, horrible, toxic things that I see people saying all the time is charge your worth.
0: Mm. Okay. Tell us about that.
1: Oh my gosh, it triggers me. Like, <laughs> you you really look very, good, very like,
0: triggered.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, take a breath. Yeah. Um, but this idea of like charging our worth, where worth, if you look at it from like a really objective perspective, worth should only mean things like what are, what's the value of my skills that I bring to the table? What's my experience? What can I add? What value do I do I bring based on the things that I have accumulated over my lifetime? However, that's not how we view that statement. That statement is loaded where worth equals worth as a human being.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah, I just, because I thought it was like a positive thing, like they're trying to be like, you know, charge your worth, girl. Um, I thought it was a
1: positive thing, but when you frame it like that. It's it's almost like that toxic positivity stuff where what you're saying it like it's come a completely illogical fallacy that mm. you're going to try and argue here because here's the thing they do they do talk about it in the sense of like charge your worth you are worthy mm. you're worthy of earning more than that yeah your worth as a human being is unquestionable you are worthy regardless of the skills that you have, the degrees that you hold, how much you charge for your sessions or how much you will take to your deathbed.
0: Ah, uh, So you're saying that we need to unpair.
1: We need to unpair with worth. Right. Or, or be really clear about the definition of worth in a statement like that. Mm. That would mean to me, if we're talking about it as like worth from like, a you are worthy of more than this because you're an amazing human being, that's not that's never at question here. Mm. You are always worthy because you are worthy. And what it says to me is, okay, well, is Joe who's currently homeless living on the streets in Sydney City worth less than me? No. Right? Yeah. Because that's what that's what a statement like that implies.
0: Yeah, it
1: does. If you're homeless, then you are less worthy.
0: Mm. Which is really contradictory to like, you know, as psychologists, we want to see everybody with equal worth and dignity and have respect for everybody, regardless of their circumstances.
1: Absolutely. And and that's what it should be, right? And, and therefore worth when we sort of unpair it and disentangle it from our worthiness. Yeah right? When we unpair it from that, then we start to make it like a business decision. Mm. How much is this transformation worth? How much is this result worth to people? How much are these skills worth? They say nothing about me.
0: Mm. So is this one of the biggest things that you see in people who come to Therapist Rising? Like they're just not sure how to treat their business as a business. They do see it more as a hobby. 100%
1: okay (laughs) yeah and and a really really low-paid crappy hobby (laughs) yeah
0: (laughs) so this is this is like you know the new model so this is mental health 3.0 that you're trying to get us to being like look this is a business make business decisions leave your crappy like you know capitalist and patriarchal driven
1: beliefs at the door come into this new world Absolutely. And and here's the thing, like there is only so much lobbying and funding we can beg and plead for, like, you know, the hungry kids at the door with our hands. <laughs> Please, sir. The government. yeah. Exactly. Before it gets to the point where you're like, well, we're starting to to beat a dead horse here. Yeah. Like we're there's never going to be enough money or funding provided to us as an industry that's going to have a significant, like I know I mean significant difference on how things are currently going for us and for consumers Mm. there's like there's not a dollar figure unless we're talking like trillions and trillions of dollars being injected into the industry which imagine how much begging and pleading we would have to do for that to be the reality we have to take ownership so as therapists I see my role my job my mission is to support and empower therapists to be the change that they want to see right? And part of this change is how can I start practicing differently? What are the mindset shifts that I need to make? What are the business skills that I need to gain that I can start practicing in in a way that still allows me to support people and do the work that is so close to my heart, but not kill myself and have to leave the profession because of it. Like there is a different way.
0: Yeah, because the demand is there. Like, you know, men- disability from mental illnesses is huge. Like it's the biggest source of disability for people under 25 and it's the third biggest source of disability for people over 25 only third two cancers and cardiovascular diseases. That's some stats that I'm pulling out my head. But, you know, it's like it's because it's so big and massive. So the demand is there. It sounds like we just need to be able to do as you say with the business brain and work out how can we get to these people who who really do want our help and services
1: absolutely and we've also got to recognize that like this blanket approach so so we're currently operating in a system that was designed to treat disease
0: Mm.
1: right so the medical model was founded on the premise of treatment of disease yes and, and not chronic disease acute disease yeah which makes it even worse. but yeah. <laughs> the mental health system is almost the same, and we've got to recognize that if we keep trying to exist in a model that's only designed to treat disease, we're not actually ever going to get in front of it. There's never going to be a fundamental paradigm shift at like a population level towards health, because all we're ever doing is trying to catch up, trying to just create the band-aid solutions for disease, right? Yeah. And so we have to, we have to be able to address disease. We have to be able to address and support the people who are on the furthest end of the spectrum when it comes to mental health. But that blanket approach doesn't actually serve us as just like this one only right way to address the whole population. We have to fundamentally shift away from a disease model, from a medical model, into one of true preventative care and I'm not talking about preventative in like the reactionary like it's not a reaction or like a you know half-assed attempt at avoiding the worst outcome. It is the embedding of health and well-being and human thriving and potential as being inherently true and fundamental to each and every one of us as opposed to being avoiding disease.
0: Mm, I, I hear where you're coming from. So, like as an example, tell me if I've got this correct. But for example, let's say a psychologist, they want to do a coaching program around body image. So it's widely understood that dieting and body dissatisfaction are key risk factors for developing eating disorders. And I know you just said like you don't want to do it as a reactionary thing. But is is this that would this be a preventative health measure
1: or not quite? Potentially, but I see it more along the lines of when we sort of think about, um, so we talk about like Australian specific, although I think this, this will apply equally to most of the westernized countries, when you sort of think about the Medicare model in particular, there is this fundamental embedded philosophy that we've got to get people from minus five on the functioning scale to zero. Yes. So, so where they're just like, they're okay. They're ticking the box, Yeah, right? absence of symptoms equals good. Yeah. Exactly (laughs) right. It's like that line in the sand where we're just like, we're fine, we're okay. Yeah. And as soon as we get them there, there's a mentality. I think both as a workforce, so as therapists, we have this mentality whether we like to agree with it or not, because of pressure to service wait lists and to get on with the job and all of those things. But I think there's also this mindset from consumers that once I'm at the once I'm at that line of like, okay, I go off (laughs) back into my life but we're not actually getting them any further along that thriving scale, right? So where we're sort of thinking about the positive five end of the spectrum where people are truly thriving, they're truly displaying like all of these amazing things like um, emotional, mental resilience. We're not actually really ever focusing there because there's this constant like I'm on the hamster wheel of just trying to keep up with the demand and burden.
0: Yeah. And I think that's really sad because then if you get somebody to zero and then say they lose their job in the next year, they go back exactly. down to minus five. And so they're never really learning, I guess, how to keep on flourishing and being the kind of person that they want to be and developing those skills. Exactly. Like that's, yeah.
1: that's the problem, right? Because yeah. when we're sort of then thinking about preventative care, it's like, like, how can we keep people at zero? But true preventative care would be the type of care that gets someone to zero and then takes them beyond.
0: Gotcha. So with like the example that I said before with, okay, say a, a psychologist must do a coaching program around body image, it would be like not only getting them to a place where they've reduced their body dissatisfaction but getting them to actively be like body neutrality and then living the life that they want to lead um, with the body that they have, you know, so I guess flourishing in that space. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, wow. Okay, that makes perfect sense. I really like that because you're right. Like, like I totally buy into that, and that's what I've gotten from like all the psychologists I've interacted with. It's like, oh, great, they're not experiencing symptoms. Yep, they can you can discharge them. They're great to go. Um, good job.
1: Absolutely. And and there is actually, it's not even just that of like, okay, discharge back yep. to you know, you no longer meet the criteria for this clinical disorder. Yeah. Off you go. Yeah. You know, I, I even think that there is like a degree of discomfort. Yeah. For therapists, when you when you continue seeing someone that isn't displaying clinical symptoms anymore, there's sort of this question of like,
0: What do I do with them? Oh my gosh! (laughs) What am I
1: supposed to be working on here?
0: (laughs) Are you in my brain? Um, That's exactly what I think. (laughs) I feel so guilty. I'm like, well, what are we doing here? And then I've had to get supervision around that because I've had to retrain myself to be like, ask them, "Are you still benefiting from this? What are you getting out of this?" They don't
1: know either half the time, right? So, so yes, I like if I was a supervisor, I would be saying the same thing. I'd be like, still stop taking ownership of the process and hand it back over. (laughs) But the thing is they don't know either what a life well lived is because like we don't have that frame of reference Mm. as a population, as a society. We are literally just like get by, get by, get by, get by, get by.
0: That's really true. And then when you think about a lot of the clients who come to see us, it's like, you know, a lot of them will have adverse childhood experiences and won't have those positive childhood experiences or may not know or have a model of how life could be for them in a way that they can find meaning and purpose.
1: Even in the absence of uh, adverse child experiences, while we are naturally skillful at the concept of prospection or the skill of prospection, which is the idea of casting our gaze into the future right so we call it like future selfing or something of the like even though we naturally do that we don't harness it Mm -hmm. right so even in the absence of negative childhood experiences or adverse childhood experiences we don't have the supporting conditions or contexts that allow us to practice the skills that would then allow us to lean into thriving Right. Okay. so it's not as if like we've got this person a who's had adverse childhood childhood experiences, so therefore they are limited in the amount that they can dream and use creativity. That is one hundred percent the case, absolutely. But there's not like this line where their person B because they haven't had those experiences are naturally going to be able to do that. I think there are there's still skill sets that need to be fostered, worked on, culminated, mm. and encouraged and explored. Mm. And if you sort of even get again, bigger than, bigger than just the mental health, when you sort of think about the school system and just how detrimental that can be for things like creativity for kids, we're, we're talking about like like systems, right?
0: Mm. Yeah. And I'm curious to bring this back to psychologists. Like, do you find in your experience, have you found that psychologists are really happy working at this end of the spectrum and helping people to flourish?
1: Oh my gosh. So one of the biggest Complaints that I get. So I always love to have conversations with therapists that come into our communities. And and when we start to have these conversations around, like, okay, so what do you actually want? So if it's not this, then what is it? And they're like, what? (laughs) What is this question? (laughs) What do you mean? (laughs) And I've got to think, I don't understand what you're saying. When they come into our communities, one of the biggest pain points for them is the sheer weight and burden of always having to work down the pointy end of the spectrum it is incredibly taxing for us from an emotional psychological like well-being perspective to be only living down there and I think that's why you see so many psychologists who are like I can only see 15 to 20 people a week before I'm like going loopy
0: yep that's me me too
1: yeah like the end of it I was barely able to see six a week and it was really taxing on me yeah I think we have to recognize that the work that we do is exceptionally burdensome on us as practitioners and as human beings and that the tax that it has on us ripples out into every aspect of our life yeah And they they come in with this idea that I don't want to feel that burden anymore, like working solely with high needs, always being on the lookout for risk. And like I don't want to just be doing that anymore. I want to I want to exist in a place where I can be helping people who are well to get even better. Yes. Thriving in their life. That actually gives them energy and feels really exciting to a lot of therapists. So I think when when you sort of say, how do they? Feel when they're working up that end, I think that's the point where you start to hear therapists say things like, it feels energising. Like when I think of working with these particular people on this particular issue or problem that they're having, I feel alive.
0: So it's so easy to work with these people. I enjoy it. It doesn't feel like I'm drained or it's, you know, optimising in terms of challenge. So it's not too challenging, but not
1: boring. Exactly. And it allows us to play a little bit more in the space of creativity and potential, right? Yeah. Like a really interesting place for us to be as therapists. Yeah.
0: So tell us a bit about how being in this space could bring back a bit of that human element to our work.
1: Well, I mean, first and foremost, we're not, we're going to take out that idea of like, I just felt like a number, right? So yeah, I think it's, it feels really obvious to say That if therapists are just playing in that sort of minus five to zero space with all of the load that comes with that, they're probably not going to be the most happy, joyful, jovial, well-functioning people after a period of time, even if they have the best self-care routine in the history of self-care routine. (laughs) it doesn't solve the problem that that's really burdensome work. And I think for a lot of people, when they stay down that end for long periods of time, it's like the analogy or the metaphor of like the light slowly starting to dim. Right. Think about one of those old school lanterns where you're just slowly, but surely turning down the gas and the light just starts to peter out until it's gone. And I think for therapists, we need the diversity of experience. We need the diversity of energy flow. We need the diversity of uh, weight, energetic weight that we hold with client work. And so if we're able to balance that or find a balance that feels really good for us, because it's going to be different for everyone. But if we can find what's the balance, like maybe it's like six clients a week clinically. And I spend the rest of my time doing X, Y, and Z over here. It means that potentially the, amount of energy that we've got then for those six people is going to be exponentially more powerful because we feel okay because we have it's like that you know the old oxygen mask like if we're putting that on first and we're really getting variety we really feel like we're tapping into our energy flow then of course we're going to show up differently for the work that we do
0: it really sounds like going into this space gives therapists permission to bring that creativity in as
1: well 100% 100% and again it's a really common thing that there and as you can imagine I've spoke to lots and lots yeah. of therapists <laughs> one of the really common things that they say is I feel like I can't be creative in that space because we're like following manuals and treatment plans and you know it doesn't feel like we're Necessarily extending ourselves in terms of our creativity. So, engaging a different part of the brain, I think, feels really energizing for therapists. And I think for the most part, a very high percentage of therapists would self identify as creative in nature.
0: Yes. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah. And I do. Yeah. <laughs> and I think a lot of people do as well. We really want to bring our full creative selves to therapy. But I guess there is like this nagging feeling of restriction. 100%. I'm going to get in trouble. Yes.
1: Yeah, absolutely and so we don't we dim right like we just put ourselves in that little box of like what a therapist is supposed to look like and I can only do this and I can only say this and I can only wear this and my I can only use neutral colors and tones on my <laughs> website and in my and in my private practice like it it makes us play in a proverbial box and the box for a lot of people is so ill-fitting That it it takes a huge toll.
0: So we're harming each other as well, really, because it's like, you know, I really love the color yellow, and I I have yellow featuring prominently on my website because I I love it. (laughs) <laughs> but it's like, even choosing my colors for my websites, I was like, what will other therapists think? And it took another, somebody who's not a psychologist to be like, look, just do your website for your clients, the people who you want to get. Um, don't do it for other therapists. Like your, your website is not for therapists. Um, okay. It's for your clients. And I yeah. was like, okay, I'll do that. I'll keep the yellow
1: which is amazing, right? Yeah. And, and it's so funny when you sort of see people are like, I I want to get my website redone or done. And I'm looking specifically who someone, who, someone who has worked with therapists before, what is that code for? It, it's code for, they get the neutrality. Yes. <laughs> they, get the, they get the vanilliness that we need to have, right? Yeah. Like they know that I'm going to need like a really plain, very neutral, minimalist design. And yeah. it's got to say, is this and like, that's disappointing. Yeah, it is.
0: (laughs) It is. So really like, okay, overall, here's what I'm hearing. You know, the model of saying 30 people one-to-one who are in the negative five to zero range of severity out. What's in is working with people who are well and who you want to help them flourish, going in that preventative space, and then bringing your full self and creativity to that space, whether that's in therapy or coaching.
1: Totally. And we don't even have to use the word coaching because I know lots of therapists are super adverse to that. Like they get really, really triggered as much as I get got triggered by that worthy statement before. We don't even have to bring the word coaching in. And I think this has been one of the evolutions that I've experienced over the last few years where previous years, I was all about the, here's how you become a coach as a therapist. I don't actually see it being like an awe. I I see this as being like, how can you bring in these different models of care, these different ways of approaching your business, these different business strategies and structures while still being a therapist?
0: Gotcha. So Hayley, for listeners who are early career psych, say they're still students or in their first few years post full registration, and they're noticing that the burnout is coming on, that they're feeling dissatisfied, that they feel like they can't bring the full selves to the therapy space. What would you be saying to them?
1: I would be saying, listen, listen to that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like listen to those signals because. Um, Ignore like it, they, and suck yeah. it up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's nothing that. to say here. Continue <laughs> yeah. on. Yeah. As yeah. You do. I, I think, you know, the, the first thing that I would absolutely steer away from is gaslighting them to, to have this false assumption that it's like a them thing, that they're mm. a bad thing. doing it <sighs> wrong or, you know, whatever, or maybe I wasn't meant for this or I'm a square peg in a round hole. No, the hole is it is effed up to begin with. Yeah. You were never meant in it. So it's okay that you feel like you don't. Um so that's the first thing is it's okay that you're feeling like this and listen to that. Take it as your body sending you a really strong message that something needs to change for you, that the system that you're trying to fit into is probably not going to be workable long long term, especially if you're feeling that right now as an early career. The second thing that I would say is you are on the precipice, literally on the forefront of a completely new model of care and an approach to health that we have never experienced before. And I think if anything, our early career sites and and potentially even, uh, you know, some of our high school students who will come into this industry are going to be the front runners in this. And so you should be because you guys have so many skills at your disposal that we don't have as the, you know, the (laughs) midlifers, (laughs) <laughs> even things like social media, your skill set compared to ours and your level, therefore, of how you're going to be able to transfer what I know about social media into my business to market effectively, to do the things that I need to do to get my business off the ground. You guys, you guys have got it in the bag, right? Like no longer will I hear that phrase, I'm tech phobe. Yes, I haven't heard that for a while, actually. Yeah, early career sites don't say that. no. <laughs> they don't. our midlife isn't above say that right yes. yeah the beautiful thing is 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 that the tech piece in particular whether it's social media or navigating like online systems whatever it is or just even existing in the online space would have kept psychs out of expansion that's not going to be the case for this gen- this generation it's not going to be the case because you guys don't have that relationship with technology so Here's those two things. So firstly, of being like, it's okay, you can do this. There is something wrong, absolutely, and it's not you. Number two, recognize where you are in history and get on board, right? So trust the feeling, trust that there is something happening here and put your hand up and say, like, I want in on this because A, it's going to allow me to meet consumers in a, in a way that's probably going to be ultimately more effective from a population-based perspective mental health approach. But even more important than that, it's going to mean that I have the opportunity to create a sustainable career that means that I'm not going to have to go and work at Bunnings.
0: Yeah. Yeah. 100%. I like it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm in.
1: <laughs> and so what does that look like, Bronwyn? So people yes. are going to be like, yes, that sounds amazing. And then they'll get off and they'll be like, but what does that actually mean? Yes. Right. So yeah. what does that actually mean? It means that if you want to stay doing one-to-one work, great, that's not a problem. But if you move yourself into private, pra- private practice, whether you're sole contractor or whether you're starting up your own private practice, I want you to very quickly start thinking about things like diversification, All right? So this is a word that I have heard my entire life for as long as I can remember, my dad would talk about We've diversified into shares and and I was always like, that's a financial thing. Like diversification is a word you only hear in the finance industry. Well, it's not. We need to start thinking about how can I diversify what I do by leveraging my skills. Okay. Whether that's creating and the way that we do it, the way we support therapists to do that is things like what are additional revenue streams or income streams that I could create that don't rely on me and my time as like a unit of input. It doesn't rely on one unit of input to one unit of output, which is one-to-one therapy. Yeah, gotcha. One hour of time, one client, one-to-one. How can I put one unit in to get exponential units out the other side? And it's things like one-to-many programs, signature programs. Creating additional revenue streams and diversification is going to be paramount in creating a business that works for you, not against you, and that allows you to cater to the multitude of different people that you will see from the minus five to the positive five on that spectrum.
0: I hear what you're saying. I'm also still in. I'm following. I hear hear where you're going. (laughs) Yeah,
1: I didn't lose you. She's not like, no, I'm out now. No,
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think that's awesome because it it just strikes me as well. It's like you're asking people, like, hey, diversify your streams, bring your creativity to try and work that out. Like, put your business hat on, but bring your full self and what you want to give to clients.
1: One hundred percent, because like that's the thing that we hear in the fi- in the finance industry, right? Is that the The reason why the finance people tell you to diversify in the first place is because of risk, right? So Mm. diversification lowers your risk, lowers your financial risk. If you only have one income, so I've only got a nine to five job, I've got no other way of income generation or cash building or anything like that for property or share portfolios or whatever it is, I'm at significant risk because Mm. if I lose my job, I can't pay my bills. Yeah. And then if you sort of think about it, even from like a a share portfolio, like they even say in that, if you've only got one type of share, what happens if that goes bust, right? We need to diversify to minimize risk. It's the exact same thing. We need diversification as therapists to minimize risk, risk of burnout, risk of having uh, an unsustainable career, risk of doing more harm to clients because we can't service them adequately, better than Just okay. Like all of these things are risk for us.
0: I feel like this risk is just shoved under the carpet. So it's like, you know, I'm thinking. (laughs) So as people like, just gloss over that. Like, you know, you might get a disability in the future, just get salary insurance, you'll be all good. Absolutely. And so as
1: therapists, we need to start thinking about how much risk does my career carry and my business carry. So if you're in private practice and the only way that you have to generate revenue is seeing one client. What happens if the industry changes and all of a sudden all of those referrals bottom out? Mm -hmm. We're in big trouble because we've only got one means of income generation. There is a lot of risk. And and here's a, just to add another mind blow to Bronwyn, but (laughs) this risk that we hold with a model that's based on one-to-one work, another risk inherent to that is we hold business risk by only working in a one-to-one capacity, our business holds risk for losing revenue through cancellations, missed appointments, uh, overheads going up, inflation, because, again, you can't do more than what you can do in a day. So we don't factor that in when we're setting our fees. And we need to, like setting a fee is not like a popularity contest or like plucking a number out of the dark or best case scenario, looking at the APA, sorry, APS website and going, oh, here's what they currently recommend the standard fees are. That's not how you set your fees. Your fees should be set based on things like overheads on risk. Like how can I factor in a portion of every single person's fee to cover cancellations or unexpected events or overheads?
0: 100%. You've given me a lot to think about, Haley, and I think listeners as well. It's very sobering, actually. It's just like all these things that have been swept under the rug, you've pulled them out, but it's things that we need to look at and examine and really address. I 100% agree. And I
1: think on the one hand, having conversations like this feels incredibly liberating because I think there's a sense of despondency and maybe like a hopelessness or helplessness that we hold as therapists that like... I don't know anything different. Like this is just how it is. And if I want anything different, I've got to go and work at Bunnings. And I think when we start to say, you know what, if we just learn these like pretty basic business approaches and strategies, we could get you out of this mess. We could create something completely different. People start to feel a sense of relief with that and a sense of hope. Yes. But on the flip side of that, then they go, oh my God, like I
0: mean, which is natural when you're learning any new skill set and we haven't been taught any business skills as psychologists. That's not covered in uni. That's not covered anywhere in our whole degree.
1: Yeah, which is weird, right, considering that we spend so much time on the clinical interventions and efficacy stuff. We spend very little time on the therapist. So So we we do very, very, very little work on how do you need to show up as a therapist? What's the stuff like? you need to work through so that you can be a really effective therapist. Very little on that, but even less on business, career building, despite the fact that a huge percentage of therapists will go into private practice.
0: Exactly. It just seems so bizarre. And I guess why it's needed that we need this therapist rising, right? So if listeners are looking for someone to hold their hand and take them into this next step, are they looking for a business coach?
1: Uh, 100%. And, and better yet, a business coach who actually understands therapy and gotcha. our industry. Because okay there are still boxes that we need to play by the rules of and figuring out how we can creatively work within the confines of what we've got in terms of our system. Most business coaches don't understand that. And that that was my direct experience. And it's lots of the therapists that I speak to their experience too. the, I went and saw this business coach and they said to do this. And I'm like, but that's directly against our ethics. And it's a, it's a mess, right? So Yes, we need support from a business coach who understands the industry, but second and probably more importantly, we need community who understand and think the same way that we do because there's lots of people who don't.
0: Yeah. And I guess coming back to it, that's what you're building with the therapist rising, right?
1: Absolutely. And it is phenomenal. The amount of community we have built in such a short period of time and how I can see, I, and I, I have to confess, this is not an, like, I don't have data. I haven't collected data. It hasn't been a rigorous, like... I'm happy with your anecdotal evidence. (laughs) (laughs) Anecdotally, what I see is the stronger the community, the more support, the more achievement and success the therapists have. So in terms of, like, getting something off the ground, creating the diversity in the work that they're doing, making choices around, like, who will I see, who won't I see, what are my fees going to be? I see those two things as being correlated.
0: 100%. I, from my own anecdotal experience, yes. So it's like I'm neurodivergent. As soon as I found more community neurodivergent psychologists, I felt more at ease and that I could do more things. And similarly, I'm also training to specialize in sex therapy. And when I connected with sex therapists, it was like, oh, like such a breath of fresh air and you see the possibilities.
1: Absolutely. And we've got a couple of early career psychs, not as many as I would like, and that I can definitely see happening in the future. And if I could dispel one myth before we wrap up this conversation, Bronwyn, one of the things that some of the older psychs are probably going to direct at our younger psychs is like, you don't know enough yet to identify a niche. You don't know enough yet to be undertaking what we're talking about right now. And that is absolute BS. Absolute BS.
0: Thank you. Because I've heard it and I'm sure you have too. And now they look down at us and they're like, you don't know, but I guess like, I don't know, maybe they're scared. Um, I don't know. Yeah.
1: And it's like that survivorship. Yeah. (laughs) Like, well, we didn't specialize, so you shouldn't specialize either. It's different though. It is completely, and it's, this is going to be born out of necessity just as much as it is. that, Like, I actually want you guys to succeed in this job and in this profession. and. Like we could even go broader than this. How many 20-somethings do you now see who are millionaires, deca-millionaires, potentially even billionaires in this world? So many. I can tell you what, <laughs> so many more than there was 20, 30, 40 years yeah. ago. Because they have more information available. There have been people who have paved the way for them to be able to do those things earlier in their life, right? There is absolutely no reason why our younger generation of psychs or our early careers should not be undertaking this sooner rather than later because later sometimes is too late.
0: Thank you because sometimes it's like no when you've had 30 years of experience and you can claim that you're an expert now then you can do these things then you can go on your book tour. Yeah.
1: Yeah right it doesn't happen like that because and again I'll speak I'll speak to some more evidence that would suggest that that is absolutely factually wrong the the term action creates clarity right like if you start taking action now even if you get it wrong so even if you pick a niche now as an early career psych and you're like god damn that was wrong you are no worse off for it if anything you've learned something really valuable that in 10 years time you would have had to have done anyway right like the clarity comes from taking action the clarity comes from making decisions and taking risks. You can't think your way through this.
0: Okay. So early career sacks, I hope you feel uplifted by what Haley is saying to us. I know I do. This has been really, really thought-provoking, like helped me to reflect on my own practices and just really helping to pave a way forward from us. So really taking us out of, I feel the hopelessness and the helplessness to seeing mental health in the system in a different way where we can contribute our skills and I guess just opening up possibilities for us to be our full human selves without burning out.
1: Exactly, and if anything, you know, it, you know those interesting studies, Bronwyn, that show the more autonomy that people have in a workplace, the higher their um, well-being and happiness at work, and all of those things are correlated with autonomy. Like, if we can give a sense of power back to therapists, that like you actually have say over how your career goes. Like, you are not at the mercy of the system, of the political climates, of the financial climates you can actually change the, the course and trajectory of your life and career. You have that power.
0: No, that's amazing.
1: That's amazingly supportive of people to live happy, long lives.
0: Yes. A lot to think about, Haley. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You're more than welcome. It was a blast. It's a real pleasure to hear you speak on this topic with such clarity. And I guess like, I feel like really convinced. I'm like, oh, okay, yes, this is a new world for us. Okay, I'll get on board
1: and hopefully that means I'm not just like a really good snake oil salesman. I don't think so.
0: I don't think so. I mean, no, it didn't come across like that. It just comes across as like, you know, obvious. I I think that would be the case to listeners as well. It's like, we've all been feeling these things internally and I think it just needs somebody else to point it out and bring it out from under the rug and then show us that this is a possibility.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, And not just a possibility. It's like, I see it as like our moral obligation. Like we mm-hmm. have to do this. Otherwise you think it's falling apart now? Just wait. <laughs> <laughs> no, very
0: true. Yes. So Hayley, if listeners want to find out more about you, where can they go? Absolutely.
1: So we're at therapistrising.com. You can find me on the gram over at kelly. i um, I'm also on Facebook, which is under therapist rising. Um, and I would be more than happy for people to DM me, ask me questions. Like the more I can serve, the more difference it's going to make. So I'm up for it. We've also got a new free guide coming out. Um, which will be a wonderful start point for everyone who's listening, uh, which is like an ultimate step-by-step guide for therapists to create, launch and sell a successful signature program.
0: Oh, amazing. Oh, wow. I really look forward to that. I will pop all of those links in the show notes, listeners. And yeah, like like Hayley says, feel free to get in touch with her. She has so much wisdom and knowledge to share.
1: Oh, thank you. I
0: appreciate that. Yeah. And thank you so much again, Hayley. It's just been such a pleasure to speak with you.
1: Thank you, likewise.
0: And that's a wrap, mental workers. Have a good one and take care. And I hope you had similarly thought-provoking insights in this conversation. Catch ya. Thanks for listening to Mental Work, the podcast for early career psychologists. As always, we need your help getting the word out about this podcast. The only way anyone will know about the show is if you tell them. Can you think of someone who might love the show? If so, let them know. You can find direct links to this show as well as all of the links I've mentioned in the show description. Thanks for listening. Have a good one and see you next time.